ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Good morning. You are listening to the Northern Territory Country Hour. It is five minutes past 11. My name is Annie Brown. It's good to be with you this Thursday during the cricket lunch break. We're just having a short country hour today, and then I'll take you back to the SCG. First of all, top-end cotton growers, like much of the rest of us up here in the top end, are just looking into the sky right now and waiting for that rain to come. I'm going to check in with how the plantings are looking at the moment. And most of us know that cane toads were introduced to get rid of the cane beetle, which is an example of a biocontrol method that turned into a much bigger problem. But did you know that there are other biocontrol methods used that have been a bit more successful, like using insects to control weeds like the pest plant, Parthenium? Delve into that story a bit more. And also, this week marks one year on from Western Australia's worst flood event on record – Ex-tropical cyclone Ellie's arrival in the Kimberley at the beginning of 2023 saw a record amount of rain dumped on the Fitzroy River catchments and stations are still recovering. Yeah, just the ongoing work. Like We still don't have an airstrip in the wet season. We're very isolated because we can't get a plane in. We can't get our mail in. Like If we have a flood now, we are entirely dependent on a chopper being able to get in. We'll check in, see how those communities and the land is recovering one year on and a whole lot more. You're welcome to get in touch as well. The text line is 0487 First off, though, most of the top ends cotton growers have had their crop have already got their crop in the ground, sorry, but they're likely to be looking to the skies to deliver some much-needed rain before too long. Around 12,000 hectares are expected to be planted this season, with growers to have access to the newly opened cotton gin near Catherine, meaning they won't need to truck their cotton thousands of kilometres to Queensland. Cotton Australia's Simon Cameron says early rains were good news for cotton growers, but they're still waiting for the wet season to properly deliver. It's been an interesting start to this season with evidently some hot dry periods in the lead up to the season. Then we saw some wonderful rain events which made everyone very excited Uh, and obviously in the last couple of weeks over the Christmas New Year period uh, unfortunately that uh, rain event has turned off which is is proving to be a little challenging in some ways particularly for any agricultural production essentially but planting and uh, looking to grow cotton. So how's the late rain been affecting the cotton? The late rains um, certainly make it challenging for a cotton plant establishment or any cropping establishment essentially. You need ideally a good soil moisture profile to help uh, soil seed contact which then obviously makes the seed germinate out of the ground so um, it can be a little tricky when we don't have uh, that adequate moisture there um, because also what happens then is we end up with these quite large or high temperatures of soil um, around the seed and that, that's not ideal for any seed that's sitting in the ground for a long period of time uh, to, to be you know sort of baked around some high temperatures anything above 
you know, 29 degrees is actually seen as a high temperature for germinating uh, cottonseed. So up here at this time of year, we're looking at, you know, you know, upwards of 40, 50, in some instances, 60 odd degrees. So it's, um, it's not ideal, but that's where um, ground cover is really, really helpful for putting your crop into some, some sort of ground cover, which most of our, our producers do that so that they can actually help to insulate a little bit that, that cotton seed as it comes out of the ground. And what if the rain came as late as late January? What would be the effect of that? We would probably see some of the plantings that happened earlier in the planting window season. So our planting window opens up officially on December the 1st and runs for about eight weeks. And during that window is when our producers that are going to plant cotton can plant that cotton. Um, So they may consider uh, replanting or they may choose or opt out opt to not re, not replant the cotton and actually look to maybe put in something else that's uh, um, going to give them some sort of value or return a fodder a fodder crop of some other other commodity. What would be the ideal weather condition to for cotton to grow? You know, good good regular rain events. Um, obviously, our soil profiles here are free draining soils, so. Um, we can we can receive quite a bit of rain uh, and not have the plant stand in water for too long, um, and so I guess you know a good amount of sunlight every day, um, a good amount of water, um, and you know sort of all the care and attention that they need to actually grow grow well. So, so what is it? Soil, water, and sun. And now that the cotton gin is opened and cotton is planted. What do you have to say to people that might have concerns about its environmental impact? Cotton in Australia is globally recognised for its sustainability uh, principles. Um, we have a really strong, rigorous, uh, my B, what we call a MyBMP program, Best Management Practice Program, um, and it uh, identifies areas of work that and and considers all of the different factors involved in 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 land care management and in good cropping management techniques so it actually is realistically um, a tool to um, enable the producers to know exactly where they need to go how they need to go about it it also is um, on the reciprocal of that um, demonstrates their due diligence for what they're doing in the field Um, and there is a lot of um, good work being done consistently in the background, research and development being done to actually enable us to be a global leader in our sustainability practices for cotton production. Uh, a lot of bales were there uh, during the opening. What, what's happened to those bales? Well, those modules, they're modules. So when we see the, the, the bright coloured wrapped, big round, they're called modules. Um, those modules will sit there. Um, they will then get processed through the gin um, and they come out as a, um, I guess, more of a rectangular or cubed-like uh, bale. That's when they call them bales. Um, those bales are 227 kilos in weight um, and those then get put into transport modules to actually take and, and to go off to the spinning mills around um, around the globe where they where they head off and a lot of our a lot of Australian cotton heads over to um, to Vietnam um, and Indonesia. 
when when will the the Conningen be processing those modules exactly? Do you have a date in mind so far? Uh, my understanding is that uh, they're looking to com- what they call commission the gin very soon. So that means that they, they turn it on, they run some uh, modules through and just to determine, you know, to iron out some of the, the kinks that may well happen in any significant infrastructure like the gin or any sort of building of such calibre. There's always going to be maybe, you know, something that needs to be tightened up or, or something that needs to be, you know, um, just tweaked here and there, um, calibrated. So they will do that. And then the idea is that they'll, they'll start to um, push those modules through that gin ongoing and then hopefully look to continue the operation of that gin and run it into the next season coming in in the June-July window so try and turn it on iron out and then keep it keep it going and rolling through for this next season's worth of cotton coming through that's simon cameron from cotton australia speaking to yarn kahoot they're still on cotton though while about 90 percent of the northern territory's crop is rain fed a small proportion is irrigated by centre pivots. Jeff Rees from Centre Pivots NT says his demand has increased strongly with the growth of the cotton industry in the Northern Territory. Here's a bit of what he had to say. At the moment, there's around about 30 we've got between Darwin and Alice Springs. Five years ago, those numbers would have been in the single digits for sure. Yeah, the industry has certainly um, got some legs over the last couple of years. Why has it grown so much? I think it's um, based on um, basically the market, uh, the cotton industry is starting to take off a little bit. Um, farmers have uh, seen the value in um, trying to grow their own crops and uh, those sort of things. And obviously the climate we're in where uh, if you've got a centre pivot uh, or an irrigator, you can control when it rains, really. Um, otherwise, uh, if you miss out on the rain, it uh, could be uh, a cost to uh, the bottom line. So as you mentioned, the cotton industry there, it's growing and therefore more people are having pivots. That's where you come in. But how long does it sort of take for that development to happen? It's quite a lengthy process, isn't it? Yeah, look, if you you were to approach us today and you didn't have a water licence, I suppose you have to, uh, one, apply for a water licence. Um, two, then you'd have to find a, a driller to drill yourself a production bore. And then um, once you've got that and we know how much water you've got, then we would design a pivot or two or three or whatever you needed for the crop that you were growing. And um, then we would build the pivot and then it'd be up and running. So that process, yeah, it, it could take up to a year plus, depending on paperwork and so forth with the first couple of uh, stages. But um, yeah, it is a little bit of a lengthy project. Over the next 10 years, how much do you see the number of pivots in the Territory growing? Good question. Um, I would like to see it, um, you know, obviously, you know, triple at least, you know, there needs to be uh, a few more. But, um, yeah, look, that that is a good question. Um, it's really depending on the climate, um, what happens with, uh, with the water that's available to, uh, to be used. Uh, it's very closely monitored, so... Um, they're definitely going to grow. It's definitely going to grow over the next couple of years for sure. Again, it all depends on the uh, the resources as far as the water goes and um, and those sort of things basically, yeah. Triple the amount of pivots in the Northern Territory. Definitely keep your eyes peeled out for that. That is Jeff Reese. He's from Central Pivots, Northern Territory, talking to rural reporter Victoria Ellis there. Don't let the cuteness fool you. Come on, puppies. A new litter of muster dogs are setting to work. 
five Australian Border Collie pups. Can't help the life, eh? Five ambitious stock handlers. Our trainers have got their work cut out for them. Who will rise to the challenge and become the new champion? You look after me and I'll look after you. A brand new season of Muster Dogs. <laughs> Starts Sunday, January 14 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. G'day, my name is Floyd. Yeah, I work in the Spanish mackerel fishery and in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I love what I do and love my job. And you're listening to the Country Hour. It is 17 minutes past 11. You are listening to the Northern Territory Country Hour. My name is Annie Brown. It's good to be with you this Thursday. Now, efforts to control parthenium weed in central Queensland have increased as the weed continues to spread following good rains. Now, the weed poses a big threat to Australia's cropping and cattle industries, and a small infestation was found here in the Northern Territory back in 2018. But the long fight to control this weed continues, and rural reporter Megan Hughes prepared this report. In the 1980s, the Queensland government started recruiting a sleeper cell of insects and fungi from overseas to assassinate one of the world's hardest-to-kill pest plants, Parthenium weed. It's originally from North America and it takes over when native plants are weakened. It's resistant to herbicides, toxic to animals and causes allergic reaction in humans. It causes crop losses, displays native vegetation, and mainly in central Queensland, I would say, reduces pasture production. So it can't compete. The pasture cannot compete with the parthenium. So they reduce the carrying capacity of the cattle. That's senior principal scientist Dr. Kunjitapatam Dilipan from Biosecurity Queensland. He's been involved in this program for decades. Parthenium weed took off in the 1950s, spreading from contaminated seed imported from the United States to Clermont in central Queensland. The average is about 4,000 seeds per plant, but there are some plants we have seen up to more than 100,000 seeds. Produce enormous number of seeds. Also, the seeds can live in the soil for a very long time. Even if we start controlling now, the amount of seeds in the soil is so high, it keeps coming back the next 10-15 years. This plant can be killed by herbicides, but the dosage required makes it too expensive, and it poses a risk to the nearby Great Barrier Reef. So in 1975, a biocontrol program was established and it remains one of the longest running programs of its kind in Australia. But Australia's track record on using introduced species to combat other pests and weeds isn't spotless. While there has been some successes... The trick is to avoid mistakes, like the introduction of the cane toad, which was brought in to eat the cane beetle, but quickly became an even bigger problem than the one it was trying to solve. So to start, the biocontrol team watched these parthenium-killing agents in their native habitats in Central and South America before selecting its recruits. They then applied to the federal government to import them to high-quarantine facilities for trials. 
and the cream of the crop were selected for controlled field trials. Actually, the application goes to all the states. No, It has to be approved by every state because once you put an agent in one state, it will go everywhere, so you don't have any control. So the application will be going to all the stakeholders, everyone. Between 1980 and 2004, 11 different species of insect and two rust fungi were released into areas impacted by pathinium weed. And in true secret mission style, each of the agents brings a unique skill set to the fight. So there's a moth that eats the stems and its larvae creates a cancerous growth which stunts the plant's growth, while a weevil targets the seeds and a beetle eats the leaves. This is all supported by the rusk fungi which also attacks the leaves. But like any good spy, they need handlers. That's where the Central Highlands Regional Council comes in. They deploy the zygogramma beetles and rust fungi, as Rural Lands Officer Susan Walters explains. So it's finding it and trying to yeah, establish it in other places. Like 18 months ago when we found it, we'd put it at you know, a couple of our council water reserves along the stock route. Then we'd also taken it to you know, four or five landowners in the district you know, for them to hopefully... Um, and then also we gave some to the, the North Burnett Catchment Group. The Queensland government estimates pathinium costs Australia's beef industry $16.5 million a year and cropping industries several million dollars a year. The battlefield is in pastures like grazier David O'Connor's, who's been dealing with a major outbreak on his central Queensland property that he bought 17 years ago. We didn't try to manage it, we just managed for the grass and let the grass come up, try to overtake essentially take away the parthenium and we also got from the council went in and when they were handing out some of the rust we'd get some plants affected with the rust we'd get some of the parthenium beetle release it and and just try and let it work itself out naturally it just really wasn't feasible to spray it because we had so much of it. While no silver bullet is going to take out pathinium weed completely, Dr Dillipan said the impact of biocontrol has been significant. It hasn't just reduced the spread. The pathinium weed plant has become smaller, less vigorous, and the number of seeds in the soil is lower. And other countries are turning to Australia to help deal with their outbreaks. Mission accomplished for those weed-whacking sleeper cells. Sleuth rural reporter Megan Hughes ending that uh, report there. Now, if you missed the program yesterday, you might have missed the news that mining magnates Andrew Forrest and his former partner Nicola Forrest could be on the verge of launching a takeover of Australia's largest cattle company, AACO. This is after their shareholding increased to just under the takeover threshold this week. Corporate advisor Tim Faulkner says the forest investment company Tatarang has been slowly upping its investment in AACO in the last few years. They've been building their stake gradually over time and more recently in the last couple of days they've increased from approximately 18.5% to 19.5%. So they're very close to the 19.9% maximum threshold in Australia where thereafter that if they are going to continue buying shares they'll have to either creep, which is a slow acquisition of um, up to 3% every six months, or, or make a takeover offer. Yeah, so how significant is it that the Tatarang is now right on that threshold? Well, I think it's, um, it is it is significant, but I don't want to overplay it because um, he has been building his stake over time. 
and and the recent acquisition is only of another one percent. So it's most likely that um, they were approached those that that line was on the market and and they decided to to take it just to continue to build their um, stake in the company, which. Um, they've made very clear that they see value in as, as part of their strategy of uh, building a portfolio of, of large-scale Australian agricultural assets. That's Tim Faulkner from Kitta Williams speaking to Dan Fitzgerald there. If you want to read a bit more about that story, head online now to the ABC Rural website. That's abc.net.au forward slash news forward slash rural. Now, this week marks one year on from Western Australia's worst flood event on record. Ex-tropical cyclone Ellie's arrival in the Kimberley at the beginning of 2023 saw a record amount of rain dumped in the Fitzroy River catchment. The deluge triggered flooding in the small town of Fitzroy Crossing, surrounding stations and Aboriginal communities. The floods destroyed homes, businesses and the only bridge over the Fitzroy River as well as leading to more than 1,500 people evacuated. One of them was Camille McClymont, who, alongside her husband and their one-year-old child, was airlifted from her home at at Kilida Station. She spoke to Alice Marshall about her experience of the flooding. The really worrying thing was from from our veranda, um, like mid-morning, the morning that the, the, the levels started to really rise, I was just on the veranda with my son and I could see cattle and I could hear them being washed like not far from my house. And that's, you know, that's that's devastating to like to be able to see them and like we literally couldn't do anything. You just hope that they got washed up, you know. And a, a big mob did actually get washed up onto our homestead island. We had like 50 on our lawn by like mid-morning that day. And my husband was able to go up in the chopper and, you know, he could see that a lot of our cattle had made it to higher ground. Yeah, but that, that, that was a real worry because you see these cattle being washed past and you can't do anything for them. Now, looking back a year on, what has your 12 months since looked like? Um, it's been, a, it, yeah, 2023 was a really hard year for us on the station Obviously, like you get the floods and then you have the initial cleanup, which, you know, it, it didn't take that long, but then it's, it's the ongoing costs and ongoing work. So like the fencing um, that took weeks and we had to get extra people in to help get it done. So our mustering program was pushed back, I think, by five weeks, um, which is pretty significant because, you know, that's five weeks that the cows have had weaners on them for longer than they should have. And, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to turn cattle off until later. So that really impacts the whole year having to do that. And then, yeah, just the ongoing work. Like we still don't have an airstrip in the wet season. We're very isolated because we can't get a plane in. We can't get our mail in. It, like if we have a flood now, we are entirely dependent on a chopper being able to get in because, you know, we can't drive out and, um, yeah, not having an airstrip is, um, it's not a good thing when you live this isolated and in the floods our airstrip got completely eroded and we haven't, yeah, we just haven't had time to fix that and to build another one and obviously the cost to build another one is huge. Have you got a figure? Have you been able to quantify the, the costs that you have incurred over the past 12 months? Um, I don't have a total cost, but I mean, like the the fencing, like we had to employ 
uh, two extra people to help with the fencing. And, you know, that's, you know, four to five weeks of extra work with a full crew just fencing. Then plus, like, um, my father does all the um, heavy machinery work and a lot of his work this year has just been, um, like, fixing up roads, um, grading along fence lines, that sort of stuff, that he, extra stuff that he wouldn't normally have to do. And then we lost we lost a tank. Yeah, we lost, like, 100 bales of hay. So, yeah, it, it definitely does all add up and we haven't actually received any funding as yet um, from the floods. Have you applied for grants? We're still in the process of it, but obviously they don't make it particularly easy. And there's been a few that we have applied for and haven't got them because, yeah, it, it's it's hard because they have they have grants for like home contents. But, you know, we didn't lose home contents, but we lost a lot of stuff in our saddle shed, which went completely under. And that's, you know, thousands of dollars worth of saddles and cattle care products, that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's we, we haven't got that back yet. What about the costs um, that you can't quantify, like feed in paddocks? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one because that, that's probably the biggest thing that we're dealing with um, now is that our, our pastures, um, they're, still, they're still holding on. They're still holding on pretty good, but like the riverfronted paddocks got waterlogged and so the feed has changed and the cattle sort of have to adjust to that and then, you know, an increase in weeds um, that were brought down on the Fitzroy River and obviously distributed with the floods. So that and that's going to be a huge ongoing cost. Like that's not something that you just, you know, fix quickly. It's it's going to be ongoing. That's Camille McClimate speaking. Who sorry, Camille McClimate, who runs Cal Yeda Station, speaking there with rural reporter Alice Marshall. Uh, stay with us here on the Country Hour because up next we're going to check in with the Weather Bureau. Hello, Timmy Jawa Brodawanga from Yirkala. You're listening to the Country Hours. Take me home, country road, to the place I belong. Very good morning to the senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, hopefully a John Denver fan as well, Rebecca Patrick. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Annie. I do quite like that song. I do quite like that song too, actually. It's quite a nice one. I'm not a huge fan of country music, but that one, it's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about what's happening uh, outside on those country roads. Uh, Tiny bit of rain yesterday, did we have? Yeah, there's been a bit of rain around. Uh, highest rainfall in the last 24 hours to 9am um, was in the Gregory District. Dashwood Crossing received 55 millimetres, uh, 47 millimetres at Barimba, um, and at Timber Creek there was 36. So um, some reasonable rainfall there, but also um, some uh, moderate rainfall across the top end as well, uh, particularly the western parts of the top end, uh, getting around 15 to 30 millimetres in a number of locations. 
Uh, we've had a few rain reports from some stations on Facebook as well. 16 millimetres at Avago, um, 31 millimetres at Sunday Creek, and Lindy Severin at Curtin Springs near Uluru said thir- 14 millimetres and long, intense light and slow light and sh- sound show last night. So a bit of action happening around there. Um, but for the rest of today, Rebecca, any rain on the cards? Yeah, um, most um, most of the territory probably expecting to get a bit of shower and storm activity. Um, so yeah, you mentioned Curtin Springs, and then we did have some severe thunderstorm warnings out for those storms yesterday. Um, and again today, we are expecting a risk of those severe storms over the Lassiter district, um, with potential for some damaging winds or even some hail through those areas. So, um, yeah, be mindful of that if you are in the southwest of the Territory. Uh, Elsewhere, um, we're already seeing some storms developing at the moment around the Gulf of Carpentaria um, and the northeastern Barclay district um, at the moment. sort of around the Creswell Downs area. There's some storms moving through there at the moment. Um, there has been a fair bit of activity along the, um, the western Tanama district as well this morning uh, near the WA border. So, um, yeah, be aware of that if you're getting out onto those roads. Um, but, yeah, for the rest of today, expecting more of those showers and storms to develop during the afternoon, um, pretty much everywhere except for the southeastern parts of the Simpson district where there's not too many people anyway over there. Uh, Rebecca, just lastly, before the news, anything else we need to be across for today? Uh, I think that's the, the main things. We do have a heatwave warning out currently as well um, for the uh, southeastern Simpson district um, and also parts of the, the Arnhem um, and Tiwi Islands as well. Um, so still some hot conditions through there, but we should be seeing an easing over the coming days. Good news to finish on. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. Have a great rest of your day. No worries. Thanks, Annie. That's Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology. And that's the end of the country hour today. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to take you back to the Sydney Cricket Ground, back to the ABC's cricket coverage. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Talk again tomorrow.